Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. This 30-minute podcast features a new author interviewed by me every single day, 365 days a year for about 30 minutes. I am also the publisher for Zibby Books, which publishes 12 books a year in fiction and memoir. Our books are already out now. You can check it out on zibbybooks.com. And we have a magazine called Zibby Mag, where we have lots of wonderful essays and lifestyle features. That's at zibbymag.com. We have classes at zibbyclasses.com. And I recently opened a bookstore in LA called Zibby's Bookshop at 1113 Montana Avenue at 11th Street in Santa Monica. I hope that you are able to enjoy some of our other offerings. But this here podcast is the basis of all of it and started in 2018. And no matter what I do, this is basically my favorite thing. Enjoy. Jess Keefe is the author of 30,000 Steps, a memoir of sprinting toward life after loss. Jess is a writer, editor, and advocate. Her writing has been published by Teen Vogue, HuffPost, McSweeney's Internet Tendency, Runner's World, and more. She has worked with national and local addiction nonprofits to increase naloxone availability and improve treatment standards. She currently lives in Richmond, Virginia. Welcome, Jess. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss 30,000 Steps. You are your absolutely beautiful, amazing, poignant, deep, awesome memoir. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh my gosh. Your description, I like I read 
I don't know if I can, can I talk about what happens in the beginning? Because I feel oh, like please. it's yeah. open. Yeah. So, <laughs> no, no spoilers there, I think. Yeah, yeah. no spoiler. <laughs> I, okay. But I'm so sorry for the loss of your brother. Thank but you. the way that you described how you found him when he overdosed, even like navigating getting his body out of the house. I mean, all of the details, I literally felt like I was sitting next to you with like you tell me like a friend, a good friend being like, oh my gosh, this is what happened. And my being like, oh my gosh, but then having to just say that to a book. So now I can say it to you. Oh my gosh. I can't believe it. I know. I mean, thank you so much. That means a lot to me. Uh, It's a very intense way to kick the story off, but I really felt like it was important to put the readers in my little backpack and bring them along with me just to experience the, the, the raw shock and, and, you know, honestly horror of what occurred, because I think that that sets the tone for the rest of the story and sort of helps put you in my state of mind and and what I was feeling and thinking after this occurred and like what sort of inspired me to go on the mental, physical, emotional journey I went on after that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my so, gosh. Yeah. Maybe we should just share with the listeners. Yeah the general circumstances surrounding his death yes. and how, what, how old you both were and where you were living sure. at the time and why you were roommates and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure. So the book starts off, um, it's, the book tells the story of myself and my little brother, Matt, and the story begins in uh, the year 2015. So I was 29 and he was 26. Uh, we lived together in an apartment in the Jamaica Plain neighborhood of Boston. We had both broken up with our boyfriends. We were sort of in this like, you know, silly, messy era of our lives, both of us together, you know, and we kind of, we had a lot of fun and, you know, we were just kind of getting through it. But the thing that Matt was dealing with that I wasn't was he had um, a drug addiction and this had sort of been ongoing for, for several years and it had kind of, you know, gone in peaks and valleys. And I think a lot of people who've experienced this either in their families or themselves, you know, know about the kind of ongoing nature of addiction. And he really did seem like he was doing a lot better for a while, but it's a tricky thing, you know, and it really only takes one time of it, not of a day, not going your way for it to be a a big problem. So, so yeah, so it was, uh, the fall of 2015 and, you know, I had been out on a date. I was just kind of living my life and I came home and unfortunately my brother was, we lived in a duplex. He was downstairs. He was overdosing. It was happening live. So a lot of people go through this. It's, it's terrible, you know? And, um, and I felt like, you know, it, 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 you know, trigger warning to people, you know, I, I encourage people to take their time reading it. You know, I've had a lot of people reach out to me who have lived with this sort of thing before. And I, you know, I want to make sure everyone takes their time and you can skip this part if it's too much, but I did. Yeah. I really did feel like it was important to, um, root readers in, in my reality at that time. Um, because it's kind of a situation you never want anybody to ever have to be in and it's hard to communicate it. The, the intensity of it without really kind of putting you there. So, so that's where the book begins. Right. And then and unfortunately my brother, he, you know, we were, we were just like a, a hair too late and we, I didn't know about things like naloxone, Narcan, like these are overdose reversal drugs that are getting more and more available now. And, and if, and if people are listening who have someone in their life that is using opioids in any regard, you should have it around. I didn't know. I, I had didn't, I had no idea. There was so much I didn't know. And so that's sort of what kicks off the rest of the book, which is me sort of looking around at everything that occurred and being like, you know, why him, not me? You know, we were right next to each other. We grew up, we had, you know, we had a a lovely child, you know, we had resources, like we had everything we needed, you know, loving parents and all that. And, um, 
And yeah, and this still happened to him and it didn't happen to me. And so that was kind of this question that really haunted me for for a while. And it's something that you can't really ever fully answer. But I think that there's a lot of value in exploring the sort of, you know, ifs and whys and, and things like that. So Wow. When you trace it all back, the moment where like your paths sort of diverged, do you have like a pinpoint where you like hold it down? It's tough. I mean, you know, like I think um, there's so many interesting people, uh, like intellectuals and professors and, and thinkers that talk about this. And one of my favorites is Dr. Gabor Mate. And he's like sort of a trauma anthropologist and he can kind of go like through, you know, and he, he talks a lot about how, um, our inner worlds are really our own. And it sounds so obvious to say that, but you know, he often will talk about how, you know, two children can be sitting in the same room, having the same life. And it feels so different to one than it does to the other. And it's not, not necessarily like bad, scary, or like harmful ways. Right. It's just, I think sometimes if the way that you learn, your brain wants to learn, right. Is what I learned in writing this book. And if you learn at a vulnerable time that substances provide relief from something that is like the critical turning point. So I think that for a lot of people, it really is just like, and we all have, right, you know, our like crappy coping mechanisms. And that's sort of why I wanted, you know, when I talked about the running and the book is about running too, but, um, you know, it's getting into running or getting into like a healthy activity is usually like praised. And it's like, Oh wow, like good for you, you know? And, and I'm proud of it and I love running, but my initial relationship with running was pretty toxic because I was like living in a weird place. I was so unhealthy. So I think we've all got the tendency to latch onto maybe a not super helpful coping mechanism when we're in pain. And I think that that is just unfortunately sometimes how it plays out with people like my brother, like they just are in a bad place and this comes along and they, and they're, and they try it and their brain learns that helped. And the brain doesn't learn like, Oh, then I woke up the next morning and felt awful. Or, you know, I'm kind of feeling alienated from the people around me. My brain doesn't remember that part. It only remembers the first part, which is this helped you. It made you feel relief and you should do it again. You should repeat the behavior. So that's kind of how I think about, you know, what happened, but it's like, yeah, you could go over it. And I have, (laughs) you know, like you could go over it over and over and look for those moments and you'll never know. And that's kind of the maddening thing. You know, I go, definitely went through a period where, you know, you look at, you kind of become like this, like paranoid, suspicious person. You're looking around at like everything around you, every person around them. And was this it, was that it, whatever. And yeah, there is no answer. So it's crushing, but it's also freeing in that way, right? Like it's not anybody's fault. It wasn't his fault, you know, and the, the the temptation to, I feel like also too, and from my, you know, I I was always looking for some reason in order to sort of be like, this was my fault. You know, like I was almost looking around for like some, something to make it, it would feel easier almost if it was able to be like, it was my fault or like, it was, you know, something that happened to us when we were little and like, that really was not the case. And it's, it's kind of just one of those things. And you also did such a nice job of really showing how the wishful thinking of the beating drugs community is just like, okay, like try harder, get your head around this, like give it a shot. And, you know, the people in the church, you know, the Catholic church and, you know, all the places to turn didn't have, like, it's a physical issue that needs like a physical treatment. It's a, it's a disease really. So. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, there's a lot of that in with a lot of medical illnesses, we, we, you know, I think in America specifically, but also just in general, there's a temptation to like moralize, you know, and be like, if you just do, you know, take this supplement or, or, you know, exercise more or whatever, like you'll, you'll, you know, heal your chemical problem going on in your body. And addiction is one of the most extreme examples of that. And it's, you know, there's a long history of addiction care being totally divorced from normal healthcare. So I think that 
even the issues we have with the healthcare system, we all know, but it's, it's, it wasn't even possible until kind of pretty recently to get like, to call up your health insurer and be like, I would like to go to an outpatient program. Can you help me find one that's in network? That's pretty new. So it, it is pretty amazing talking to people now who are in recovery and who are receiving treatment and hearing about their experiences because, you know, just in the, in the eight years since this happened to me, it does sound like a lot has changed and that's very exciting. It makes me very happy. And I think that, you know, the degree to which this is unfolding all around us, I think we're kind of getting to a point where a lot of people are looking around and going, I don't know if what we're doing is working, you know? So. Oh my gosh. Well, now talk about the post, you know, overdose moment and the rest of the journey. Yeah. It's all about that. Yeah. So the rest of the journey of the book kind of follows, as I mentioned, my running journey. So I was always like an athletic child in like a vague way, never like a star, but like I was always like on the team and like there. So I was was definitely present. Um, So, you know, it was kind of like groping around, dealing with pretty intense grief, living alone. You know, I moved, I moved from Boston back to New York and I was just sort of like going through it, you know, and um, trying to figure out what's next for me, I had, you know, I had been in a serious relationship that was over. Uh, I had been living with my brother. He had passed away in a very traumatic way. And I was just really like groping around looking for something to help. And so I, I one, yeah, one day I just kind of was scrolling on Instagram and saw a promotion for the Brooklyn half marathon. And I thought like, okay, maybe like a goal, you know, people had told me like, pick something, just anything and try to do that. And so I was like, all right, this is going to be the thing I pick. So I picked that. I had never, I, you know, I, I always kind of run in like that weird, you know, sad way that you just go out and flail around for like three miles and get home like exhausted and like very red. And like, I guess I did something. So this was much different. Have me. you been like, spying on me? That's exactly <laughs> what running is like for me. Like 100%. Yeah. Like, and I, you're kind of like looking around, like, is, yeah. am I supposed to be like doing something different? Like, is this supposed to feel different? Like, cause it feels terrible. Yeah. So, <laughs> and the red but, like, face, like, I'm like, how do I like, you oh know, my god! Going on Zoom, like how am mm-hmm. I going to get this face? I know, like this is why I can't like exercise. And like some people like run out and get a workout in the middle of the day. I'm like, I look like I'm going to go into cardiac arrest, like no matter what. <laughs> so people are like, Are you okay? If I have to have a meeting or something after that, but yeah. So this was the most like structured. Like I downloaded like training plans. I had to like read about it. You know, like 13.1 miles was a lot to me then, and I was like, I don't know. If uh, I it it is a lot. It is a lot. <laughs> Full a lot. stop. It's a lot, right? Oh my gosh. I ran my first full marathon um, in the spring and I was like, never need to do that again. Not never, <laughs> but I was just like, wow. Like what? <laughs> like I didn't know, you know, it's just, it's so intense. So, so yeah, so this is my first ever. And since then I've actually run 10. I ran my 10th in November. So I've done 10 F marathons since this very first one. Oh so my it, gosh. Yeah. So, yeah. So it's like, it's, so the book sort of like, I tried to structure it around, you know, my process of doing the running training and sort of, and the thing about running and the thing that's useful for me about running is that you can kind of let your brain like roll around while you go. So it would simultaneously feel like, you know, this really relaxing sort of like state of nothingness. And also I I would really just think, you know, I would think about like what happened. I would think about my brother. I would think about our life together. And so that's the sort of experience I wanted to emulate in the second part of the book, which is, you know, me going on these training runs and sort of just like considering things that happened to my brother, things that happened to me, different elements of, of what I've learned. You know, I got really like obsessively research, you know, reading about addiction, like feeling really compelled to like understand this thing. And I tried to bring in some of the things that I learned that I felt were the most relevant and valuable to the story. So, you know, stuff about the D.A.R.E. program, which I've heard from a lot of people that is very interesting to them as well, you know, (laughs) 
uh, treatment, how drug, how, you know, substance use disorders are treated, if ever criminalizations, all kinds of stuff. So this was all very interesting to me at the time and continues to be, but you know, it's, it's sort of that onion thing of like, once you start peeling it, like it can really just go and go, like, there's a lot to this issue and there's a lot to this problem. So, so yeah, so that's the, 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 so the book then kind of builds towards this race and then sort of follows me on the, you know, of going through the race and then kind of living and living in the reality of having achieved the goal. And now my brother's still gone and kind of like, now what kind of things? So that's the rest of the story as well. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Well, and it's not just the goal of the half marathon. It's the goal of writing the book, too. <laughs> Yes. Oh my gosh. Yes. Which is yeah. like the biggest, I mean, that's a huge goal too. Like all these hurdles you're literally jumping over. It's like, yeah, I know. And you know, this, like, like writing memoir is uh, a very particular kind of thing. And it was something I kind of resisted for a while. I, I had been writing about myself and my brother, you know, for various online magazines and websites and stuff. And I would have people be like, wow, like, you know, it really sounds like you have enough for a book. Have you thought about mm-hmm. doing a book? And I would be like, oh, you know, like, yeah, that sounds that sounds hard. And guess what it is. <laughs> but, but once I got, you know, it's it's sort of like you just become obsessed. Like you kind of like you have to kind of get obsessed with like delivering and finishing and doing the thing you said you were going to do. And that's how I felt, you know. And it's it's your own life, which is sort of uncanny as well. Your 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 source, your like you know, kind of flipping through the 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 photographs on the floor, being like this or this, this or this, you know, like it's true, it's all true, of course. But it's every one person is, you know, I'm just one person. These are just my memories. This isn't like a reported history of like what happened to myself and my brother. Um, and I joke because I feel like if you know if he were still with us, he'd probably read some of this and be like, "Girl, what?" <laughs> so you know, <laughs> take everything, with, you know. But but he knew, you know, when he was alive, you know, he would read my writing all the time. And he was always very encouraging. So, you know, there was a part of me too, that struggled with that aspect of it as well. But I, I, you know, I know people say this, but I really do believe that, you know, he would be want me to do something like this. So when you have that energy behind you, it makes it a lot easier to like push, push, push. 
So it was a lot of a push. And I think that once I figured out that the story really did involve me and really did involve my life and my feelings and my growth as well, I think that really kind of unlocked the whole thing for me. So it it was supposed to be a memoir and it was supposed to be told this way. It wasn't supposed to be essays. It wasn't supposed to be narrative nonfiction. Like it really, I feel like the strength that I have as a writer in this book and elsewhere is, you know, I try to bring people along with me. And I think that there's so much interesting information out there about drug addiction and about the opioid epidemic. And and I really just, the thing I thought I could contribute that would be unique would be this very specific, very human story of just like me as an individual and him as an individual and what happened to us. Yes. And just like the impact on the family. Like it's one thing to say, oh, the opioid epidemic is affecting families left and right. But it's another to be like, here's my brother. Here is my life. Here's my mom and dad. I mean, you know. It's, yeah. it's, people need to, to experience things through other people's eyes, not hear about it in statistics to really feel moved to do anything about it. Yeah, absolutely. And there's so many different, you know, and that's the thing, like there, this is just one experience and there's so many different ways that this affects people. And there's so many different types of families having different types of experiences. And yeah, all we, you know, I feel like, you know, being as, as specific as you can sometimes helps people think about things in a more general way. So instead of writing, you know, platitudes about, you know, the number of deaths and which is horrible, you know, but I think at a certain point it's people are almost desensitized to hearing about it. It's kind of has a numbing effect because it's so horrible and it continues to get worse and it feels like nothing we're doing is working. So it was important to me as well to, to tell the story, but also to lean into the fact that just because what we're doing isn't working doesn't mean there are things, there aren't things that would work. And there's so much interesting science and there's so much interesting research on the things that do make an impact and do make it easier for people to recover and live normal, healthy lives. It doesn't have to be a death sentence. And I think that is definitely something I felt, you know, when I was younger and when he was first dealing with this, I was just sort of like, you know, it's, 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 I'm embarrassed by it now. And it's, it's hard to admit, but I think when he, when he was really struggling through it, I was like, this is how he's going to die. And then he did. So you don't want to be in a place where you feel like you have to put people into this like self-fulfilling prophecy kind of thing. Like there are so many effective treatments. There are so many people that are living just the best lives now. Like there's so many interesting people in recovery of such cool things to say about their experiences. And it just doesn't have to, it really doesn't have to be this way, you know? I think it really doesn't. Totally. Wait, tell me um, about the, so the writing, which was hard and all of that. <laughs> what was the whole like path to publication like for you? It was stressful, <laughs> you know, cause it's just like, this is, you know, I'm really looking forward to writing another book that's like science fiction. Cause I'm like, <laughs> this is like the most like personal thing I've ever done. So, you know, yeah, you, you, you got to learn a lot about like what's feedback that is useful to you. What is feedback that is indicative of people who are not on the same page as you? What is feedback that you can take and work with? What what are the people that really want to help you champion the story? And, and what are the people that want to change something fundamental about the way you want to change, tell, tell the story, right? Mm-hmm. So being able to connect with an agent who I feel like really vibed with me on a human level and really understood, you know, voice is very important in memoir and it's not something that's negotiable really. So I think sometimes it's hard to understand if someone is giving you direction that is not true to your voice. And it's it's a hard, it's kind of hard to figure out sometimes. So when you find someone who really is on board with your voice and really just wants to like make it even more what it is, that was, I feel like very useful to me. And yeah, we just, 
we took it out and, you know, you go through the whole process and it was stressful and intense. Um, and you hear, you know, it's like, I describe it as sort of like a video game, right? It's like, you jump to this level and like this editor likes it. And then you jump to this next level and they brought it to their boss and they like it. And then you jump to this next level, you know? And so I was really pleased with Prometheus, the, the publishing uh, house that we ended up with. My editor there, Jake, is just a, a lovely person. And I feel like really understood what I was trying to do like pretty much right away and gave me a lot of freedom to do what I wanted to do. You know, he was helping me tweak the nuts and bolts here and there. He was asking important questions, but he wasn't trying to change my story or change the message that I was trying to deliver. So that was very great. That was really great. But once we sold it too, it was like kind of, it was very, we, we were on a fast track. So I was busy with it. I'm sure you know as well, you know, you're like, you get the little like rush of like, Ooh, it's going to be a real thing. How great. You get about 30 seconds to enjoy that. And then it's like (laughs) your, your first draft is due like in three weeks. So you're kind of just like sweating and crying and (laughs) writing alone. (laughs) And just like, it's so long, you know, you're just like, you have these, you know, you have your, your people that are, that are there for you, but ultimately this is your show, you know, like it's your book, you're, you're responsible. So it's, it's a lot more, you know, it's very solitary. And that kind of, I I don't know why I would be surprised by that, but it it felt like after so long of kind of living in it for like by myself, it's just, it's just a joy now to have it out in the world and having people read it and being able to have conversations like these. It's just, it's so satisfying. And it's really like, if I could go back, you know, six months ago or nine months ago, whatever, and remind that version of me that that there'd be this at the end, it would, it would really help. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, there is a... But light at the end of the tunnel. Totally. Yes, absolutely. Yes, 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 yes. Wait, so are you seriously going to write science fiction or what are you thinking for your career? I really like, like, I. it's funny. I mean, it's not funny. Like, this book is so, like, I would not have written a book like this if it weren't for, like, the thing that happened. You know, it was like, I was never, like, I always, like, wrote, like, essays and stuff about, you know, my, like, self and stuff. But I never thought I would write, like, a memoir. So I, I really enjoy uh, comedy. I really enjoy humor and, you know, there's some humor in the book. I hope that comes across, but like, you know, it's, it's, uh, I I feel very excited about what's next because I I feel like I, I poured really like everything I had into this in the way that it is. And now it's like, okay, cool. Like you could write, you know, a comedic thriller. You could write something that's totally fictional and like pulls from real life, but is not my life, you know, sticking everything out there. So that's what makes me excited about, you know, what's next. So I will always continue to write about drugs and policy and issues like that, because it really matters a lot to me. But yeah, book wise, I'm trying to just like, go like, live like a different, like, totally fantasy life. Like, that would be great. That is awesome. And did yeah. you did you like quit your day job, so to speak? Or do you have another? Well, gig? so yeah. So I, I worked when I was writing the book too, which was actually very, was very helpful, but also increased the stress level. I did have a full-time job at an addiction advocacy nonprofit. So it was very helpful to have the, like the people around me informing my work and helping me understand this issue and being able to work directly on this issue while I was doing this. Like, so it's, I, I was so immersed, right? So, so now I'm freelance full-time, which is great. So I have, you know, I'm still taking on, you know, nonprofit and, and business clients to do professional communications and stuff, but I'm, I'm able to mix in more of editorial writing and working on book stuff and, and things like that. So it's, it's, it's satisfying to be at a stage in, in my life and career where I can feel a little more self-directed. So, you know, still kind of hustling and grinding, but yeah, very just excited to be a published author and looking forward to this next section of my career, having that achievement under my belt. Well, congratulations. You yeah. are so great at reaching all of these wonderful goals that you yeah. set um, <laughs> and it's inspiring. Before we go, I have to see a tattoo. It's 
Can I? This one? Is that the one that didn't heal properly? Yeah. Oh my gosh. It looks that, I mean, I'm making it It looks look great to me. I mean, what it's, do I know? But do you, do you remember that TV show? I'm probably dating myself. Uh, Pete and Pete on Nickelodeon. No, the, the, I'm so older the, than you. But oh, I, right. well, so, <laughs> that little, so the little brother, Pete, one of the jokes was that he had a, t- a tattoo on his forearm and it was a lem- it was a mermaid and it was named Petunia. And he would do this like weird movement that make it like dance. <laughs> and I feel like I'm doing that right now, but like not on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, this is it here. I still have it. I, I have since I got my brother had, as I describe in the book, my brother had a lot of tattoos. I have tattoos. Like we liked to get tattooed. We both, that was something else we had in common. Um, and he had this beautiful giant like thing on his arm, like this big sprawling piece. So I got a, a piece of that as well on my ribs, which, Aww. you know, I'll, I'll keep my clothes on since this is a, this is a podcast. <laughs> but, you know, it's it's just, it's nice to be able to do things that I know he would just get a kick out of and um, enjoy. So I've had this touched up since then. My artist fixed it for me. So oh, okay, Yeah. But that, I mean, what, like it was uh, going through that really helped me understand, you know, as a, as a recovering uh, Irish Catholic, there's a lot of tendency to like self blame for your bad feelings. And even going through grief, it's like, well, it's not really that bad. Like you're okay. Right. And it's, it was helpful almost in a, in a weird way to be able to look at this open wound on my body, a tattoo I had gotten the day my brother died and be like, this isn't healing, (laughs) you know, like my body on a molecular level is going through something right now. And I think that showing that physical element of grief was, um, really important to me because I didn't really feel like I, I really understood or was ready for that. And you'll never be ready, but that physical piece of it was really intense. Wow. Well, Jess, thank you for sharing, bearing your soul, sharing everything. <laughs> My pleasure. I, I probably need to do less of that, but no, you know, it's you like don't. I can't resist. <laughs> no, no, no. And I really, I love the way you write and, you know, you can't, you can't help but like feel like so much affection towards you after reading your story. You know, Aww. I'm like so rooting for you. And I love that. I love that. So. I love that so much. That's um, great. Congratulations. And thank you. Excited to see what, what you set your sights on next. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. I love Thanks. the podcast. It's, oh, it's, such okay. a, it's such a great way to share awesome, interesting books with, with such a big audience. So I really appreciate what you do. So thank oh, you. Oh, of course. Well, I hope yeah. you stay in touch. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Okay. Thank you. All right. All right. Have a great day. Bye. 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 Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.